Well, as I just said, I became a Christian at about the age of 20. And as I look back now, I realize how naive I was about what following Jesus would really be like. And one fantasy that I clung to tenaciously was that I was gonna make it all the way through my Christian life without ever really suffering. I had seen enough pain in other people's lives to want to avoid it at all costs, and faith in Jesus was my strategy for cruising through life unscathed until the day I woke up in paradise. After all, didn't Jesus say that he came to give us life in all its fullness? And so I just interpreted that to mean that, I, that if I was fully committed to him, he would not let me suffer, at least not as intensely as I had seen other people suffer. But right from the start, um, I saw storm clouds on the horizon. Um, among my first group of Christian friends, there were three godly couples who all ended up divorced and two friends, both of whom died of brain cancer. Another who was paralyzed in a wrestling accident. Uh, Another couple who had two severely disabled kids. I I observed all of that and yet somehow thought, nothing like that is ever gonna happen to me. Right, Lord? And through the years, I've had other Christian friends who have experienced every imaginable variety of suffering. Terminal disease, kids on meth, financial crises, depression, tragic loss of loved ones through accidents or through suicide, marital infidelity, false accusations, demonic oppression. You name it, I've seen it. And yes, I've experienced it. And so have you. In fact, most of us are going through some kind of painful trial right now. Try as we might, we cannot escape suffering, even as Christians. Or or maybe I should say, especially as Christians, because doesn't it seem at times as if those who follow Jesus suffer more than those who don't? What's up with that? I mean, we just listened to Kate and Jess sing this song about the goodness of God. And in James 5, verse 11, you can see it right there in your Bible. It says, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The word that James uses for compassion describes what we feel in our gut about those that we love the most. It's an ache of affection. And he adds a prefix to the word that makes it even more intense as if to say that we have never loved anyone as deeply as God loves us. And his love is not just something that he feels, it's something that he acts upon. That's what the word mercy means. It means that he will do whatever is necessary to meet those needs that break his heart, our needs. Really? Well, if God is that good... Why is life this hard? That's a question that you had better have an answer to, or you will become dangerously disillusioned. Maybe that's why the first subject James dealt with when he wrote this this book, this letter about nitty-gritty faith, 
to his scattered friends who were 15 hard years into their Christian life, the first thing that he talked about was the purpose of trials. If you go back to chapter 1 and right to the beginning of the book, you're going to see this. Um, actually, today, we're going to look at everything in the book of James um, that is uh, on this subject, uh, the subject of trials and their purpose. And in order to do that, um, we're not going to just be able to go verse by verse because this isn't the way that James wrote. He had a very unique teaching style where he would hit on one topic and then he would go to another topic and another and another and then back to the first one. And then and so he kept going back and forth. There were about seven different big ideas in the book of James and he just kind of hits one, goes to another one, goes back again and he's, he's like bouncing all over the place the whole time. So imagine if you could just take all, all seven of those themes in the book of James and write them on a piece of paper, big letters, just write one, two, first one's trials, two, three, four, five, six, seven, cut it, cut the paper into seven pieces, stack them up and then cut those pieces into thirds because he hits each of the topics an average of three times. Well now you've got 21 scraps of paper 21 squares. So get out some scotch tape and put all, it doesn't really matter, we just put them all together, just lay them down until they look kind of like the page you did in the beginning and tape them all together and that's the book of James. Seven things that he talks about but you're not sure when he's going to bring up, you know, each one. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to just take them subject by subject, which means we're going to jump around a little bit. This is subject number one of Seven. Start reading in verse 2 of chapter 1. James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Well, already this is messing with me because James tells me to be joyful about that which I find most frightful. Here I am trying to dodge trials, and he's telling me to welcome them. That doesn't mean that I'm supposed to seek them out. That, that word face, when you face trials, is the word that Jesus used when he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. The man fell among robbers, he said. He, he didn't go looking to be robbed. Uh, he was the victim of a surprise attack. And sometimes we are too. Trials ambush us. But when that happens, James says, rejoice. He's not saying add a splash of joy to the mix of negative emotions that trials elicit. He's saying, I want you to replace self-pity and resentment and fear with undiluted joy. One paraphrase says, consider it a sheer gift when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. Well, how do we pull that off? Are we supposed to uh, pretend that we're not in pain? Like that Monty Python character who gets his left arm cut off in a sword fight and says, tis but a scratch. And then his right arm, after which he says, it's just a flesh wound. Is that what James is advocating? Denial? No, he wants us to rejoice in suffering because of the effect that it has on us. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces 
perseverance. Man, there's just so much there. First, James helps us to see trials from a whole new spectrum. A whole new perspective. Uh, you know, they seem random to us. They, they might even seem malicious to us. But actually, they fulfill a divine purpose, which is what? Well, first in the process, they test our faith. That word testing was used of the melting down of precious metals. When you apply intense heat to gold, for instance, all that is not pure gold is removed. So, so not only is the genuineness of the gold confirmed, but it actually comes out of the process better than it was when it went in. It's tested and it is purified. And the same goes with our faith. When we experience suffering so severe that we are tempted to doubt the goodness of God, or the value of following Jesus, some people fail the test. They quit. They say, this is just too hard. I'm out. Jesus talked about it in the parable of the soils. He said that some people receive the word of God with joy when they hear it, but in the time of testing, they fall away. Their so-called faith can't take the heat. But those to whom God has granted genuine faith pass the test. Peter wrote that the reason why we suffer grief in all kinds of trials is so that our faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Isn't that a mind-blowing thought? Because we know that when Jesus returns, we're going to praise and glorify and honor him. But Peter says he's also going to praise and glorify and honor us. Because our faith will have weathered, it will have survived all kinds of trials. In fact, it will have been purified by them. You see, rather than making us stop following Jesus, trials actually have the opposite effect. They strengthen our resolve to keep following Jesus. To use James' language, the testing of our faith produces perseverance. That's why God allows us to suffer. It's to produce that character quality in us. Perseverance. Let me try to give you a metaphor for this. Um, think of life as a weight room. And trials are free weights. And God is our personal trainer. He decides how much weight goes on the bar. Uh, too little, and we will remain weak. Too much, and we will be crushed. But the right amount of resistance will make us strong. That's the goal. A, a well-developed endurance muscle. It's essential to the complete package. Imagine a bodybuilder with an almost perfect body. I mean, perfect biceps, perfect pecs, glutes, quads, whatever. There's only one problem. Instead of six-pack abs, he's got a beer belly. 
If you saw that, you would say uh, that his muscle development was incomplete. <laughs> he's not a perfect specimen. He's, a, he's kind of a freak because look at that beer belly on that otherwise perfect body. Well, our spiritual development is incomplete until we develop that trait of perseverance. It's our, it's our six-pack abs. And it's not the only quality that God is building into our character. There are many others. Um, love, right? Um, humility, holiness, self-control. He's constantly at work sculpting us into Christ-likeness. But we will never be like Jesus until we are as committed to and as capable of finishing what we have started as Jesus was. Just as he endured the cross, so we must run with perseverance the race marked out for us, Hebrews 12 says. James says it this way in verse 4, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything but what makes our persistence grow resistance does the testing of our faith trials dang and here's what really bugs me james says you know it's true See it in verse 3? You know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. This is not new information to most of us. How many sermons have we heard about the value of suffering and the purpose of trials? How many sermons like that have I preached? And yet it is a lesson that I have been plugging my ears to for much of my Christian life. Rather than facing trials with courage, I've tried to outrun them or at least numb myself to them. But they're unavoidable. Why? Because God is more stubbornly committed to making me like Jesus than I am to avoiding pain. Better to surrender to his purpose than to kick against the goads. But maybe you're still not convinced that the benefits of developing perseverance outweigh the costs. Maybe you would ha rather have fewer trials, even if that means being less like Jesus. I get it. Good luck with that. But let's talk about an even more basic reason why God insists on building our endurance muscle. It's because of his determination. Listen to me. It is because of his determination to help us make it across the finish line of faith. You see, perseverance is required for us to make it into heaven. Ooh, did red lights just start flashing in your mind? If they did, here's why. It's because you know that eternal life is a gift that is given to us on the basis of faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, what? Believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. 
And Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. This is John 5, 24. Salvation is by faith alone. But Jesus also said, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And the apostle Paul said, that God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. And the writer to the Hebrews said, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. And look at what James wrote. Look at your Bible at, at verse 12 of chapter 1. He said, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. All of those passages are using different language to say the same thing, that only persevering faith, not temporary faith, not fair-weather faith, not the kind of faith that Jesus was talking about that fell among the rocky soil, but faith that lasts. That's the kind of faith that results in eternal life. In fact, the genuineness of our faith is proven by its perseverance. So it's not a denial of salvation by grace through faith to say that perseverance is required for us to make it into heaven. And it's not inappropriate for James to describe salvation as like a reward that is given to those who, 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 who finish the race. That crown that he refers to in verse 12, that crown of life, it's a victory wreath worn by the winner of an athletic contest. He's painting a picture of us persevering through all the trials we face and crossing the finish line and being rewarded with the ancient equivalent of a gold medal, the victory wreath, which for us is eternal life. And Jesus painted the very same picture in Revelation 2 when he said, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown or victor's wreath. No suggestion in those words that salvation requires something more than faith. Rather, saving faith is just more than we thought it was. It's not just a free pass that we are given. It is a muscle that must grow in order to withstand the temptation to quit before the race is over. And God is so committed to getting us across the finish line that he builds that endurance muscle by putting just the right amount of weight on the bar. Yes, it is painful, but it is also purposeful. Paul said it this way, these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Light and momentary, he says. Man, trials don't feel that way, do they? Certainly not momentary. 
I mean, it kind of seems like they just last. They go on and on. As soon as one is over, another one comes. Momentary? Are are we really that close to the finish line? Yes, we are. Turn back to chapter 5, and I want you to start reading in verse uh, 7. Chapter 5, verse 7. James says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. So that's what we're looking forward to, the return of Jesus. And then he says, See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, this is in verse 8, You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. It's near. The imminency of Christ's return The reality that it could happen at any moment is very consistent New Testament teaching. Paul said, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Peter said, the end of all things is near. John said, dear children, this is the last hour. And Jesus himself said in the second to last verse in the Bible, yes, I am coming soon. Okay, so why does it feel like it's taken so long? Well, it's because time is relative. Peter said that with the Lord, a thousand years are like a day. On the the timeline of eternity, our earthly life is no more than a dot. So we are almost home. And we have to remind ourselves of that or else our perspective will be skewed. 22 miles off the coast of Southern California uh, is Catalina Island. It's an idyllic place. In fact, Robin and I um, had our first anniversary on Catalina Island. And after we we celebrated, uh, we boarded a high-speed catamaran that took us back to the mainland in about an hour. 22 miles, one hour. Some years earlier, a woman by the name of Florence Chadwick took the same route, only she didn't sit in a boat. She swam. For 15 hours, she swam in dense fog. She could hardly see the boats that were accompanying her. And finally, she was so worn out, so, uh, it felt so much like it was never going to end that she begged to be taken out of the water. And her mom was in one of the boats, and she was shouting to her, Don't quit now. You're so close. But Florence was so exhausted that she gave up. And it wasn't until she was in the boat that she realized that she was less than half a mile from shore. At a news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Well, we we live in a fog. And so these trials that we face, they do tempt us to quit. But James is in the boat shouting to us, you're so close to shore, don't quit now. But he also knows that for us, a day can feel like a thousand years. That's why even in the midst of telling us how close we are to the finish line, he encourages us with three inspiring examples of patience. First, the patience of farmers. We read it, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. That's in verse 7. Now, admittedly, many of us are unmoved by that example for the simple reason that we're not farmers. 
But most of us have planted something at some time or another. Tomatoes, tulips, whatever. And if you've ever done that, you know that if you ever want to see what you planted to come to fruition, you're going to have to wait. Patience is required. The payoff is not immediate. But it's predictable. And that's really what James is saying to us. There, there are many passages of Scripture that emphasize God's dependability in sending rains on the crops of farmers. They plant, and then they wait in faith. And eventually the rain does come. My grandfather was a Nebraska farmer, um, and he irrigated most of his crops with well water. He pumped the water out and into all those little, what are they called? Furrows, what are they called? Furrows, somebody who's a farmer. I watched, I watched it happen. He showed me how he did that. But there was a part of his land, it was very hilly land, and over there it was too hard to get the irrigation there. And so he simply planted the seeds and said, uh, I'm not going to water that. He called it dry land, unirrigated. And that little chunk of land was kind of like what most farmers in James' day did all the time. They didn't irrigate the land. They planted the seeds, and then they waited for God to send the rain. And he did, because he's that faithful. And James just says to us in verse 8, You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. It's going to happen. The word that James uses for patience, by the way, is sometimes translated long-suffering because that's what the compound word literally means. It means to suffer for longer than you want to. And it often refers to patience, to long-suffering with people, specifically people who mistreat us. Some Bible students see in verse 8 of chapter 5 a hint of Psalm 37 which says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. There's actually a passage that Jesus quoted when He said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It's the same, it's the same word, earth, land. He's quoting Psalm 37. See, among the, the, the trials of many kinds that we experience are those in which we're mistreated, often because of our loyalty to Jesus. And we can't help but notice that uh, some of the people whose lives seem most prosperous and most carefree are those who couldn't care less about pleasing God. And here we are living with unrewarded faithfulness. James is just saying, hey, all that's going to change when Jesus comes back. Hang in there. Suffer long. And you will be rewarded for so much longer. Suffer on the dot. You're going to be rewarded on the line. And if farmers don't inspire you, maybe God's prophets will. Verse 10. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed 
those who have persevered. Now that sounds an awful lot like what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Oh, they sure did. Uh, Throughout history, it has been a dangerous thing to say what God once said. See Ezekiel tied up with ropes. Jeremiah wasting away in a dungeon or a muddy cistern. Daniel thrown into a den of lions. John the Baptist's head on a platter. The book of Hebrews says that some of God's faithful servants faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. It went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. And then the scripture says this, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. They had to wait for the whole duration of their dot to cross over onto the line where their reward was waiting for them. And those godly people who refused to quit comprise that great cloud of witnesses that are now cheering us on as we run with perseverance the race marked out for us. But there's someone else in that crowd of finishers that can inspire us when we are tempted to quit. Job. See it in the middle of verse 11? You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. I'm going to be honest with you. I look at that and I go, I don't really want to be inspired by Job. You know, I mean, I would never want to endure what he endured. The loss of his wealth, all of it, the loss of all ten of his children, after which the scripture says that he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord uh, has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Wow. And how is he rewarded for that kind of faith? With the loss of his health, He was afflicted with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head, Job 2 2 says. And he had no clue why. There's no explanation. We get the explanation. We read that the devil was trying to make him curse God. And his wife said, yeah, that's what you should do. Curse God and die. But Job replied, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. I'll tell you, I I could not relate to Job at all if not for the way he wrestled with his faith. I mean, that's all in the first two chapters, what I just read, but there's a lot of chapters that come after, after that where he's still suffering, he's still waiting, God is still seemingly absent, and man, is he writhing in agony. He's racking his brain, trying to understand why God would inflict him with such misery. But the one thing he does not do is he does not chuck his faith. He cries out, though God slay me, yet will I hope in him. 
When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. That's perseverance. My favorite definition of endurance is Gary Patterson's. He said, endurance is never letting down or letting up, just letting out lots of yells and grunts and groans. That's what Job did. And what did the Lord finally bring about? Well, he restored his health. He doubled his wealth. He gave him 10 more children and then grandchildren and then great-grandchildren and then great-great-grandchildren. Job 42 says the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. That's why James points him out as an example to us. See, we face trials of many kinds, often with no explanation. And in the midst of it, we yell and grunt and groan. But what we do not do is let down or let up. We persevere. And because of that, the Lord will bless our latter days more than our beginning. Yes, the dot can be really painful. But the line is going to be pure pleasure. On September 3rd, 1987, a Cape Elizabeth native by the name of Hank Dempsey was piloting a 15-seat twin-engine turboprop aircraft from Lewiston to Boston when it was reported to him that air was leaking from the seal around the back door. So he let his co-pilot take the controls and he went back to investigate. That's when the plane suddenly hit turbulence and Dempsey fell against the door and the door flew open until it was hanging by the hinges on the bottom. It was one of those doors where there are steps on the inside so it hinges down so that you can step off the plane and now he is hanging outside the plane. There's a little handrail on those steps and he's clinging to the handrail upside down. And, and um, his head is actually below the bottom step. The plane was flying at 5,000 feet, 190 miles an hour at the time. And in the cockpit, the door ajar light came on. So the co-pilot looked back. He saw an open door, but no Hank Dempsey. And immediately he radioed his coordinates to air traffic control so that the Coast Guard could begin to search Casco Bay for the missing pilot. And he made a beeline for the Portland jet port. Little did he know that Hank was hanging on outside. Somehow, as the plane descended, he was able to move slightly up the stairs. And when it landed, the door scraped the runway. And Hank Dempsey's head was like inches from the ground. Emergency personnel saw him hanging there. They immediately came to his rescue, but it took them several minutes to pry his fingers from the handrail. There are times in life when all we can do is hang on. And when those times come, hanging on is all we have to do. I believe to my bones that we are eternally secure in our faith, but I also know that God keeps us safe by strengthening our perseverance muscle and by nudging under shepherds like James and like me to say to his people, when all else fails, just hang on. Let's pray.
oh, Lord, right now I have no idea what it is that's causing each of these dear children of yours to feel like quitting. To just, so, there are so many of us that are just saying, really, do I have to keep going? Can I please just give up? It'd be so much easier. We're in a fog. And we can't see the finish line. And we need your perspective. We, need, we, 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 we thank you by faith for that weight that you are putting on the bar right now and the way that you are developing our character so that we have what it takes to make it all the way to the end. And there is going to be that day when we step across the line into paradise. And I pray that there will not be a single person who has heard this message that will not make it to that point. Pray that, that the power of your word will be such that every single one of us will have that genuine faith that perseveres all the way to the end. And so for those that are tempted to quit today, give them grace at this moment to make it through this day. And may your mercies be new to them tomorrow morning as well. In Jesus' name, amen.